King James, the Schofield Bible that we use, the King James Bible, it's on page 1231230. But I'm going to open this morning with the verses we ended with last Sunday, which is verses 19 and 21 and 20. Those are on page 1233, a few pages to the right. So if you'll pray with me, we'll get started and look into God's Word. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can open your word, find our place, learn from you, encourage and strengthen one another as we share and hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. I finished with this last week. Yesterday I was at a gathering of, oh, I don't know, six or eight people from the Suncoast Youth Ranch, where I was when I was a teenager, and... Uh, we were chatting, one of them, one of them, the man's name is Brian, and I happened to mention how I was ending my Sunday school classes these days, and he was very happy. He said, you know, we grew up on First John 5.13, uh, excuse me, on Second Corinthians 5.21, and I said, yes, we did. Yes, we did, because this is verse 19. This is the content I would say, of the gospel, and Paul says, to wit, which is to say, I'm explaining to you that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God was in Christ, we use this wallet illustration, and we talk about if I use this hand to represent Jesus Christ. God in heaven gave his only begotten son, John 3.16 says, God was in Christ. And what he did, here we are with sin on us, God reconciled the world unto himself. He took the sin of all mankind on himself. There were two thieves crucified by Jesus, one on one side, one on the other. One we know was a believer, the other we don't know about. We know it's not recorded in the Bible that he ever believed. But they represent all of mankind, believers and unbelievers. And all sin was placed on Jesus Christ. God says in this verse, reconciling not just the believers, not some elect group, but the world unto himself. The word reconcile. When two people have a relationship and then something gets in the way of the relationship, they don't have as close a relationship anymore, something is between them. But if they are reconciled, what is in between has been taken out of the way. God was in a relationship with mankind. He created them and he wanted this relationship. He created them in his image. But after Eve and Adam sinned, there was something in the way of the relationship. They couldn't be as close anymore, so God did something about it because Adam could not. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. He took away what was in between them. It says in the next phrase, not imputing their trespasses unto them. After Jesus died on the cross, the sin issue is gone, and he's committed unto us the word of reconciliation. We're supposed to talk about this. You said yesterday at Tyrone Mall, you and your gang led 28, 23 people to understand the word of reconciliation and trust Christ as their Savior. That's a wonderful thing. 
He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Sin is paid for, but not everybody goes to heaven. Verse 21. Hello, machine. You'd think it would move when I do this. Or not. Do it here. Verse 21 says this, again using this illustration with my hands and the wallet as sin, it says, he made him to be sin for us. The one who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I'm trying to show you that my Jesus hand is covering, entirely covering up me. In him, I am made the very righteousness of God. Why? Because I'm in him, because I have believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God in heaven, his son Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that the story? And then verse 20, at the end of it, says, this is just like, as though God did beseech you, beg you, plead with you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. Again, this is what Louis was doing over at the mall last night. We beg you, we ask you, instead of Christ, Christ would do this if he was here, I'm here instead. Be reconciled to God. From God's side, everything that stood between, that interfered with the relationship has been taken out of the way. But he says, now you need to be reconciled to God by believing in, in Jesus. It's a tremendous presentation. And my friend Brian said, that's how we were raised. And sure enough, it was at the end of every meeting where there were lost people present or possibly lost, or even if there weren't any lost people present, he still ended with the gospel to shame those of us that should have been bringing lost people to the meeting. But the reason we give the gospel at every meeting, not just because the internet's on, but because the pastor wants you to know that if you bring someone to a meeting, they'll hear the gospel. Also, the second reason, the pastor wants you to know how to give the gospel, and so he demonstrates it time and time and time again. And the third reason is because you ought to bring lost people to hear the gospel. You ought to explain it to them yourself. Pray them, beg them in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. But that's why you'll always hear the gospel at the meetings here. I need to move back to the beginning of the presentation for today. There we are. <clears throat> well, we're starting in 2 Corinthians again here. And I would like to give a little more background today. This comes after, duh, 1 Corinthians. <laughs> but I think of the... I listen to talk radio sometimes. I used to have done so for years. And Mr. Rush Limbaugh used to talk about his stack of stuff. And he has his preparation in front of him. He doesn't have any trouble talking for three hours, making it seem like it's nothing. Others have a stack of stuff in their show preparation. Paul, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, had a stack of stuff. And he goes through 
and I'm not going to do that today, but the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul is saying, you guys are breaking up into parties. You're saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. And the next thing down on his stack of stuff or another one down on his stack of stuff is you're letting somebody who's in open sexual immorality have great fellowship in your church and you're just rejoicing about it. You should be ashamed. And another thing in his stack of stuff he pulled out says, you're going to law in front of unbelievers. Why don't you just take wrong? I won't go through all of it now, but the first Corinthian letter is Paul going through a stack of stuff and yelling at him almost. He says, you need to correct this, you need to correct this, you need to correct this. At the Lord's Supper, chapter 11, he's saying, you get together and you get drunk before you do the communion service. You ought not do that. Some of you are sick. Some of you have died because of this. He's going through his stack of stuff. But he sent that letter, and it had its effect. It was a corrective letter. And he, he sent people with it, and he heard back and forth from the people in Corinth, and he wanted to go there again, but he wasn't able to get there as quick as he wanted to, so he wrote 2 Corinthians. And it's not going through a stack of stuff to criticize him. In 2 Corinthians, as we heard last week, Paul is full of encouragement. He wants to comfort them. He wants to strengthen and lift them up. And that's how 2 Corinthians... And I like 2 Corinthians. You might have noticed a lot. But that's... It's possible... In the first chapter of Second Corinthians, he's, asking, he's answering this question that the folks in Corinth might have been asking. Why haven't you come yet? You said you were going to come. And so he's going to answer the question about why he hasn't come back to be with them in Corinth as quickly as they might have expected him. We might have that question, not about Paul, we don't think Paul's coming again, but about the Lord Jesus. Why haven't you come yet? And the book of 2 Corinthians can help us understand, why has the Lord not come back yet? Maybe we got some things we still need to do before he comes back. We beg you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. I want to fill in a little bit more of the background. There's a list of things here. I, I was playing with PowerPoint and made a slideshow that followed one of their formats. So here's some things in the background about Corinth, and we'll look at each of these four pictures a little more closely in the background. This is not the temple in Corinth that is why it was widely known. The temple of Apollo in Corinth was a temple of Apollo, and he was important in the pagan Greek culture, but Corinth was not known as the city of Apollo. Corinth was known as the city of Aphrodite, some of you know Aphrodite is the goddess of sensuality. And Corinth had the big temple of Aphrodite. Up on the hill behind there, that's a tall hill, it's called the Acropolis of Corinth. And I got up to the top of that a few years ago. It's a long walk, but uh, it was up on the Acropolis that the temple of Aphrodite was in Corinth. Corinth was widely known as a center of state-approved prostitution. The Temple of Aphrodite was supported and brought in all kinds of money for the city of Corinth and the religious leaders of Corinth because of the ladies who were dedicated to serve whoever came there. 
This is not a photograph. This is a rendition of the Temple of Aphrodite up on the Acropolis. And I won't go into detail except to say this was what Corinth was known for. The sailors that came by, the tradesmen that came by land, they came to Corinth because of this. It says in the slight subtitle here, according to Strabo, the temple of Aphrodite contributed greatly to Corinth's wealth. That's just rough to think about. And yet God, when Paul visited Corinth, he said, I want you to know I have got a lot of people in this city. Don't be afraid of their faces. Tell them the gospel. The book of Acts says Paul preached the gospel in Corinth, and then he wrote to Corinth, and then he wrote to Corinth again. There were a lot of people for God in the city of Corinth. Tampa's not necessarily the most moral place in the world, nor Tyrone, Square Mall, but God's got people there. And we are, like Paul, supposed to be not afraid of their faces, but sharing the gospel. One of the other, I think of her as a young person because she's maybe two years younger than I am, who was at this reunion I went to yesterday, told a story about when she was working at a public store, a much younger person. Um, and she was in her Bible and read something to the effect that it's time to get out and do this. And so she got up and went to work. It was very early in the morning. She thought she might be the first one in the store, but saw a light on up in the break room. <coughs> and so she went up to the break room, and there's a lady sitting at the table reading a book you may have heard of called The Omen. I think that's by Frank Peretti. It's sort of a Christian book, but it's about demons. And it's a, it's a pretty harsh story, The Omen. And she was reading this and my friend Sherry came in and said and the girl looked at her and she said it was just about like the uh, Ethiopian eunuch she said I'm reading this I know some of it's real but I don't understand can you explain this to me what is he what is he talking about how great an opportunity is that there were two or three uh, stock men that came in young boys that were playing around throwing things around as Sherry's trying to explain the gospel to this lady. And the lady said, hey, knock it off. She's trying to explain something important to me, and I want to understand what she has to say. Now, if you want to, you can sit here and listen to her too, but you keep it down. And so she was able to explain the gospel. The lady trusted the Savior. She's not sure about the boys. but uh, What a great opportunity. Don't be afraid of their faces. Another thing that just help us a little bit better, it occurs to me that not everybody is as geographically grounded as everyone else. Some people wouldn't be able to name seven continents if you asked them to and don't have a real good grasp of things. I tend to be able to visualize where things are and all. A map is a helpful thing. This is a map of the, a kind of a close-up of the center of the Mediterranean Sea, the little thing sticking down on the top left side there is the, the tip of the boot of Italy, or the toe, might be the heel of the boot of Italy, but it's Italy, it's that close. Macedonia and Achaia 
are the two parts that the Romans divided this peninsula into. We just call the whole thing Greece, basically. There's a line somewhere in between Macedonia and Achaia. You might see Philippi there at the top right of the map. That was the first place Paul preached outside of what we call Asia Minor, outside of Asia and in what we call Europe, Philippi. And there's Thessalonica and Berea. You can see Paul's progress as he made his way down. And then Athens, quite a ways further down. And then Corinth. And you can see on this map, at least, the the way that Corinth is so important whether traveling by sea or by land, you can't get to the big peninsula called the Peloponnese without going through the Corinthian Isthmus. Now here's a closer view, a different view of it, I guess. There's an arrow there sort of pointing toward Corinth. I don't know if the contrast is good enough to see. But when your boats were not deep ocean boats and you traveled mostly along shorelines as they mostly did, Corinth was important because instead of having to go all the way around that long in and out variegated coastline to get from one side of Greece to the other and then on over to Italy, you go into the isthmus of Corinth, the narrow place by Corinth, and drag your ships across on rollers. They were little ships. On the eastern side of the isthmus was a port city called Sencrea. At the end of the book of Romans, Paul talks, you can go back to that, the very last chapter of the book of Romans, page 1209-1210. The first verse of Romans 16 says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church which is at Sencrea. Receive her in the Lord as become a saint, that you may assist her in whatever business she has need of you. She has been a succorer of many, a helper of many, and of myself also. So when Paul wrote to the Romans, he mentions this woman, Phoebe, who might be the one who carried his letter to the Romans, and she was a servant of the church in Sencrea, kind of a outskirts of Corinth, if you will. It's, a, it's not a huge distance across there. Sencrea and Corinth. Corinth is really right on the water on the west side of the isthmus, and Sencrea on the water on the east side. What came before 2 Corinthians? It was a letter to correct baby Christians. We mentioned this already. 1 Corinthians did. My stack of stuff. And reviewing a little bit what we looked at last week, who is who in this here? Who, who's it from? Paul, and he included Timothy, and he said it's from Macedonia, looking at Second Corinthians at the beginning of it here. Actually, it's not in the beginning that it says this. At the end of Second Corinthians. Yeah, it's not there also. I think it was from, from Philippi, pretty sure from one of the cities in Macedonia, and it's a reference inside the letter that I don't have with me just right now. What did I do? Schofield might tell us. Probably from Philippi, he says, after the events of Acts 19, 23 through 20, verses 1 through 3. That's Schofield's help. Who's it written to? The Church of God at Corinth and all the saints in Achaia, that whole 
everything south of Macedonia. And I think it's for us as well, as we said last week. And what is in it for me? And there's a list of, there's actually five headings here, six headings. There's encouragement. We looked at one, three through seven last week. There's more encouragement in chapter two, verses 14 through 17. He says, now thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. This microphone's moving around. There we go. Fell off my head. See if I can keep it there. That's much better. Sorry. So, we are unto God, verse 15 says, a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death and to the other the savor of life unto life. In chapter 3, in verse 5, there's more encouragement. He says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything... It fell off again. Man. To think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who has made us able ministers of the New Testament. It's over my ear. It's just not attached to the earpiece. It's fallen off the earpiece right here. What else do we have besides encouragement in here? Well, chapter 2, verse 7, we have forgiveness. So contrary rise, you ought rather to forgive him. This is that fellow that was being so immoral so publicly that had gotten right with God, and he says you ought to comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up in overmuch sorrow. Give me just a second. See if I can fix myself. High tech. Borrow this little clothespin. Maybe that worked. Maybe. Okay, so chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Verse 8, he says, I beseech you that you confirm your love toward him. Be forgiving. Verse 10, to whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. If I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. There is a warning in verse 11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. We're not ignorant of his devices. Satan's a tricky devil. There's plain teaching in chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. He says, don't teach like Moses did, verse 13, not as Moses which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which was abolished, the law. They couldn't see it when Moses, he came down, he was too bright because he'd been with God, and so they had him put a veil on Verse 14, Paul takes that truth of history and applies it. He says, their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, 
the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. When Jewish people hear the gospel, the veil that kept them from seeing the truth of God by Moses' hand is taken away, Paul says. The veil is on their heart until their heart turns to the Lord. There is instruction in verse 12. He says in chapter 3, 12, seeing them we have such hope we use great plainness of speech. Schofield has a marginal note there that says that means boldness of speech. Boldness of speech, plainness of speech. I like both words. Verse 18 of chapter 3 says, We all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. When we look at the glory of the Lord Jesus in his book, the Bible, we are changed. If we don't have a veil over our face, if we don't fail to see what the book plainly says, It'll change us. Changed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. That's a great promise. In the very next verse, if you ignore the chapter break, therefore seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. We've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, we're not tricky, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We just teach it. Verse 5 and 6, he says, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants, your slaves, for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's a great sun in the sky. At night, there's the moon sometimes. On the sea, there's great lighthouses sometimes to shine out. But sometimes we need the lower lights to actually make it into the harbor, and we are the lower lights. God's the great lighthouse shining out into the darkness, attracting the ships. But he's shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. There's an old hymn that says, Let the lower lights be burning. Send the gleam across the wave. Some poor, desperate, hopeless seaman you may rescue, you may save. The song came out of a shipwreck story where the lighthouse was lit, but all the storm had wiped out the lower lights. And so where the shore was was known, but the entrance to the safe harbor was not. The lower lights had gone out. The song says just that. Let the lower lights be burning. Send a gleam across the wave. Some poor fainting desperate seamen. You may rescue, you may save. We are the lower lights. God's light shines out from the pulpits, from the Bible, from the radio maybe. But we who are actually in contact with lost people, take them on into the harbor. It's on us. We'll get to chapter 5 and say, We beseech you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. There's that warning again in verse 2 through 4 here. 
it already, we read it. We're not handling the word of God deceitfully. Verse 3 says, if our gospel is hid, it's hid to them that are lost. When a meeting of believers gets together, we understand the gospel. The gospel is plainly understood, but lost people are blinded to it. Sometimes they argue against it. Verse 4 says, the God of this world, that's not a good God, has blinded the minds of them which believe not. That's the distinction. These believers are unbelievers, and the ones that believe not, the tricky devil wants them not to be saved. He's blinded their minds, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, the image of God, should shine unto them. And so we speak. And so we speak. We'll go back to chapter 1 now and pick up kind of more verse-by-verse fashion. Verses 8 through 11, Paul is explaining, as I said, why he hasn't come yet back to Corinth. This is back on page 1230. He says in verse 8, We would not, brethren, that you have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia. We were pressed out of measure above strength insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver us in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. You also helping together by prayer for us that the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. You think about what happened to Paul as he made his journeys twice through Asia Minor. And when he talks about the sentence of death, you realize, oh, he knows what he's talking about outside the city of Lystra. After they tried to worship him and Barnabas as gods, they got mad at him for saying, I'm not God, we're trying to get you to turn from these worthless idols, and they stoned him. I think Second Corinthians at the end of it says they stoned him to death, and he died. He was caught up to heaven. He was caught up to paradise. And then God sent him back, says, you got to keep going, boy. I'm not done with you yet. And God answered the prayer of many, and Paul continued. But the sentence of death, he's, when he says, God who raises the dead, I think he's got personal experience with that. It says you delivered, and he will yet deliver. He did deliver, verse 10 starts with, he delivered us. And in the middle of verse 10, he says he currently delivers us. He's delivering us right now, and in whom we trust he will yet deliver us. There's three tenses of how God delivers us from death. So if you're worried about... Man, I might get killed if I preach the gospel. There's some really crazy politicians out there. You know, in Michigan now, if you teach from the pulpit something of the truth of the Bible about sexuality, you can go to jail. The Michigan legislature, in its great wisdom, has passed a law that says that kind of stuff is hate speech, and it's a, it's a crime. Not been tested in court yet, but that's a scary thing. I go to Michigan for three months every year or two months. Well, we go on here, verse 8 through 11, he says, You also helping by prayer, verse 11, you helping together by prayer for us. Well, there's 
He said, wait a minute, who does it? Does God deliver or do you do it? God is the deliverer, but we help. The Corinthians helped Paul. How? By prayer. There's no contradiction. We trust in God. Verse 9 says, we trust in God that raises the dead. And in verse 11, you help too by prayer for us. The prayers of the saints help God's people. I hope you're not shy about praying very specifically for those you know that are needing help. I hope you pray for Pastor Martinez each time he is preparing for his messages all through the week. Pray for him. And as he stands up to deliver, pray for him. Your prayers help. I hope you pray for the sick. I hope you pray for your friends. I hope you pray for lost people. You say, wait a minute, they've got to trust in Jesus. I can't do anything about that. Paul says your prayers help. I trust God's going to deliver, but your prayers help. You also helping together by prayer for us. God doesn't have a problem with you praying for something, even if he's already involved in what he's going to do. God likes it when we pray. There's a conundrum I don't know the answer to. I probably shouldn't even mention it, but something you've been praying for and you keep praying for it and then you realize, oh, that's in a different time zone and whatever happens has already happened. Should I continue praying for it? You know, God's in a different sphere entirely. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by time zones. Just keep praying. Paul trusted the Lord and said the Corinthians' prayers helped him. Keep praying. Don't worry about the conundrums and puzzles of time. God's not bound by it. Here in verse 12 through 16, we've got some words I wanted to share with you. Our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we've had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. I looked up this word simplicity. It looks like it's pronounced something like haplotes, Haplotes, and one of the dictionaries says that means singleness or simplicity, gay, or sincerity, mental honesty, the virtue of one who is free from pretense and hypocrisy, not self seeking, openness of heart manifesting itself by generosity. He says, in simplicity, we have had our conversation in the world. I like that. That's somebody that's not a hypocrite somebody that's not two-faced. He had to criticize Peter and Barnabas when they came through Galatia and the churches in Galatia because their dissimulation, their hypocrisy was messing up the gospel message. The word sincerity, elecrinia, another Greek word, yay, and that one means purity, sincerity, ingenuousness, which means purity or sincerity. And it comes from ele. Ele. Ele is the word that refers to the, the rays of sunshine, this sun, sunshine. And I heard a long time ago that when you had a broken piece of fired pottery and you wanted to sell it, some dishonest people would take wax and fill the cracks. And then they put water in it. It was like cool water. They put cool water in it, and it would hold water. and say, look, here, it's a perfectly good pot. 
but the test of the pottery was to hold it up to the sun because the sun would shine through if there were wax-filled cracks in that pottery. And so purity, it's, it's a good piece of pottery. It it's, uh, doesn't have any cracks in it. Purity, sincerity, ingenuousness. And Paul says, in simplicity and godly sincerity, he taught. He had his conversation. This word conversation in the English Bible is used a few times, but it's not always translated from the same Greek word. Sometimes it means their manner of life. This one is anastrepho, and it's an unusual word. It's kind of underlying meaning means to turn upside down or turn back, turn here or there, sojourn or dwell in a place. But the fourth meaning is this is how you conduct yourself, how you behave yourself, how you live, your manner of life. But understand it's a word that's used other ways as well. So it's an unusual word. We've had the way we are in life in the world. I just thought it was a funny word. He says, I was minded in verse 15. In verse 13, he says, We write none other things unto you than what you read and acknowledge. I trust you'll acknowledge even to the end, even as we have acknowledged, you have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even so ye also are ours, our rejoicing in the day of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. He says, Oh, I like to be with you, and you like me to be with you. Verse 15, In this confidence I was minded to come unto you before, that you might have a second benefit. I was on my, I just wanted to come see you and to pass by you into Macedonia and to come again out of Macedonia to you and to be brought on my way toward Judea. When I was therefore thus minded, did I use lightness or the things that I purpose? Do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? He says, this is my plan. I was planning to come to you. I didn't change it lightly. I didn't use lightness. He says, nope, I don't do the yes, yes, I'm coming. No, no, I'm not coming. Verse 18, he says, as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay, not yes and no, yes, no. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. He's all yes, yes, Lord, yes. All the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes, yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. All the promises of God in him are yes, in him amen, to the glory of God by us. It's really the, the meat of the message. He says, I, I didn't get to come like I was wanting to come, but Jesus is still the important thing, the focus of it. Verse 21, he says, Now he which establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. He's anointed us. He gave us the Holy Spirit, is what John calls the anointing that we have. He's also sealed us. He's anointed us. I, I have under that, we're on a foundation and we're put into service. Established is on a foundation anointed is put into service. He established us. We've got our feet set on a rock. He's anointed us. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He's sealed us. 
and given the earnest. When you seal something, you make it your own. When the Romans put a seal on the tomb where they buried Jesus, they thought they had him taken care of. But he burst the seal so they could see he had risen from the dead already. And he's given us the earnest. You know we're not in heaven yet. Have any of you noticed that? It's not always heaven here. But we have the earnest. God, the Holy Spirit, is the earnest of our permanent possession of God himself. We have the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Verse 21 to 24, finishing up, he said, To spare you, verse 23, I call God for record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. To spare you. I waited. I sent that first letter, and I held back coming again. I didn't want to come right in on the heels of that letter with my stick and go about beating people. I, I waited to spare you. I waited till I heard how you'd been obedient. Verse 24, he says, Not for that we have dominion over your faith. We're helpers of your joy. By faith you stand. Not by dominion over your faith. First Peter 5, Peter says something to church leaders that agrees with what Paul said right here in First Peter chapter 5. I have a loose-leaf Bible here and there. 1 Peter chapter 5, page 13, 15, he says this to the elders. Verse 1, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory which shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, don't try to force, don't be physical, but willingly, don't make them make you be the preacher. And not for money, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. And then verse 3 we're trying to get to here. Neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Paul said, I don't have dominion over you. I'm a helper of your joy. Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1 about this joy. He wanted to help them with their joy. Philippians chapter 1. Page 1257, or 1258. He says, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you and having this confidence. I know I shall abide and continue with you. I'm not going to get out of here and go to heaven yet. For your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. I'm going to come again and it's going to help your joy. And at the very end here of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, by faith you stand. Even if I don't show up, you've got the Holy Spirit. You've got the foundation under your feet. You've got the anointing. You stand by faith. You don't need me. I'm glad we began with these verses at the beginning today because the clock is running out on me. But I would remind you, this is the content of the gospel. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. What stood between him and man, he took out of the way. It is explained as saying, not imputing their trespasses unto them. 
God no longer considers the sin issue between him and man. It's taken care of by Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the very righteousness of God in him. And folks, this is the invitation. We pray you, we beg you, oh please, we beseech you, as though God did beseech you by us, be reconciled to God. Jesus said, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Be you reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word in this attempt to lay it open this morning before these good folks. We pray that whoever's listening to this will hear your word coming through the rest of this that I tried to share. Hear your invitation. Hear your appeal, your beseeching. Jesus died for you. Believe in him. I have taken the sin problem out of the way. Be you reconciled to God. He's reconciled all of mankind unto himself but you must believe in him to have the righteousness of God put to your account. Thank you, Father, for making it so plain and so simple. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. God bless. We'll have church here in a few minutes.